And it kind of gets to a point where it's like, it really does feel like you're in a simulation. Basically, like these bots are, you know, they're, they're programmed to have these personalities. And the first message that pops up when you open it is like, hey, I'm your mom. I've always got your back. Tell me everything. And I'm like, wow, tell me everything. That's a lot of data that Meta is going to collect on you through just chatting with this bot, right? And the bot immediately goes, um, I'm not... I'm not a bot. Data, what are you talking about? I'm not a bot. I'm not a robot. I'm a real person. I'm a real mom. And I was oh, like, wow. um, no, no, you're not. You're a bot. You are made by Instagram. You're owned by Meta, which is the definition of big tech. Like, can you please explain to me how you are not big tech? You know? Hello, and welcome to What Would Jesus Tech? My name is Andrew Noble, and we are experiencing the future. The future of technology is now. Things are changing so rapidly, we need to catch ourselves up, not just with the meta announcement, but with a whole assortment of things that are happening with AI, with the metaverse, with deep fakes. And to, to talk about this, I'm, I'm joined with not only Joel Jacob, my co-host who works at Splunk, um, and he eats tech news for breakfast, um, but also we got Ian Harbour. And Ian and I have kind of become friends over the last year. Um, I honestly saw something he wrote in January. You might not even remember writing this, but it was when you announced that you were, uh, you signed a book deal, you're writing a book. And just the way you are articulating it and the way that I saw how you were discussing things online, I was like, huh, this guy, Ian, he seems to get the internet and get how to use it in a positive way, like, like taking the stigma away from building a platform as an example and that sort of thing. And I, I literally sent an email with that article to myself saying we should have this guy on the podcast. Um, because I was like, he's just thinking about the internet in a way that I think is balanced. It, it, it addresses some of the dangers, but it also is optimistic and encouraging and, and give some wisdom on how churches might use it. So that's my my introduction to Ian, but it didn't really give um, some of what you do. So Ian, welcome to the show. And can you just tell us a little bit about what you do? You're a writer, but you also work in digital media. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. That's really kind of you. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm a writer. I'm writing a book right now. It's not on tech. It's actually on deconstruction and reconstruction, just because that has it's a big part of my story and kind of came out of an uh, article I wrote for the Gospel Coalition a few years back during the pandemic, right before the pandemic, um, uh, sharing some parts of my story, and it kind of snowballed into now there's I'm writing a book around it. Not about my story, mm -hmm. just about the topic. Even though these uh, topics of deconstruction and tech are not entirely uh, unrelated either. But tech digital marketing ministry. That is my day job. Uh, so I work for a ministry called Endeavor. And basically what we do is we provide sort of a digital marketing backbone infrastructure for Christian podcasts and publications. So I'm a marketer in that. I work with that. I don't think marketing is a, a, uh, a dirty word, even though it can be used for bad. It can also be used for good. And so, uh, so that's what we do. We basically try to pump uh, digital antibodies into the the bloodstream of the internet in order to help people encounter Jesus and the gospel and good teaching and good messages um, that are different than a lot of the, uh, I call it the social media, the spiritual distortion zone <laughs> that is the internet sometimes where you encounter misinformation, disinformation, people with mixed motives pulling you away from Christ. The algorithm itself is designed not really to be very spiritually conducive for us. Mm. Um, and so just being able to sort of uh, 
I hate this term really, but to kind of fight fire with fire and say, if people are going to be on the internet, we want to infiltrate their, their algorithms with, uh, the gospel with good news and just try to meet people where they're at. So that's kind of what we work on doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really cool. Everyone should check out Endeavor. Um, they are a rising um, publication. You might say that is, is in this area of faith and technology. Um, the antibodies metaphor um, is an interesting one. It's like, this is, this is not good, but it is good you know, that it has that in it, the idea of, of the medicine. I'm curious, I, I, I never asked you this before. I don't know if you've written about it, but your deconstruction story, you were struggling with your faith, um, potentially leaving the faith. We'll link to that TGC article for people to read the whole story. But did that have to do with the fact like you were working with Christian nonprofits, you were on the internet, so it was kind of part of your story. Was it part of your story to bring you back to the faith, getting access to online content? Yeah, I, uh, I've i written a little bit about this, but this is um, definitely a big part of it. Uh, the time, the timeline is interesting. It's, I was, there was times where I was deconstructing and working in ministry at the exact same time. And that's why that's part of one of the reasons I'm writing a book on it is because deconstruction is extremely confusing and disorienting. And I want people to understand that. Um, but yeah, I would say, uh, digital tech and media, uh, really influenced both my deconstruction and reconstruction. Um, hmm. when I was already kind of, uh, having doubts and in a vulnerable place, uh, this is years and years, this is like over a decade ago, I discovered on accident, fed by the algorithm, uh, one of the original deconversion stories on YouTube. Uh, now they're a dime a dozen. They're everywhere. That was not the case a very long time ago. And so finding that and um, really that series of videos wrecked my faith. Like absolutely. I mean, just systematically one by one took it down. It wasn't hostile. It was very uh, empathetic towards Christians because this person was a former Christian himself. And um, so that was, that was a very disorienting for me. I really had no categories at the time for those types of things and what to do with it. Even going back and listening to it today, it's still challenging. I, I at least have categories now for what he's talking about, but back then I didn't. Um, that kind of led me just, I mean, we're shrinking the timeline down here, but that kind of led me into <laughs> more progressive Christian uh, media. So uh, the liturgists and Rob Bell and Richard Rohr and Pete Rollins, it's sort of that whole ecosystem of, uh, you know, progressive Christianity or whatever you want to call it. And, um, and so that, I mean, that is a very uh, sort of anti-institutional movement. And so they're not in churches, right? And so they're the way they disseminate their information is through the internet. And that's how I was consuming it. And so you sort of have this dichotomy of like, there was times when I was in the church, there was times when I was more de-churched. Both, in both instances, I'm consuming this content. It's more formative than anything else I'm doing at the time. Um, mm-hmm. Somewhere in that mix, uh, there was an overlap and then a slow fade into phasing a lot of those voices out and phasing in voices such as like John Mark Homer and the Bible Project and different, you know, John Tyson, that sort of stream of things. That slow fade kind of, you know, started to shift some things because I was getting categories over here that made way more sense biblically uh, and spiritually than the progressive Christians that I had been formed by for so long. So that kind of slow fade led me into I've hit the bottom of this and I want more of this. Where do I get that? Which kind of actually put me back mm-hmm. into uh, a local church. I actually had to go to, it was a mega church. So I had to go to a Dallas campus version of it. So I had to drive a long way, but regardless uh, kind of a local church 
a uh, formal theological education training that they put on uh, that actually fed into a seminary. Uh, and so I did that. And that is what really, for me, provided a foundation where I was like, okay, I can, I could rebuild my faith on this. And so, yeah. And I mean, in a lot of ways, it was media that sort of um, usurped the institutions that I was in for better or worse. I mean, the institutions I was in were, were not great, uh, but yeah, kind of undermined those in a lot of ways. But then it was also sort of changing that media diet over the period of a few years that pushed me back into more embodied uh, institutional forms of education and just the church in general, you know? Yeah. That's and so, yeah. really insightful to hear, right? And to like understand that story of like how technology, media, right, can influence all of us. And like you mentioned, the algorithm uh, optimized for just giving you more of what you're looking for had pushed you deeper into certain certain paths and into other paths, right? So I think that just, yeah, it just underscores what we're talking about here with how impactful technology has been and shines light on what it might do going forward with what we're seeing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which it's, is why, it's why I'm passionate about why I, I do what I do, because I've been on the side of it where I've been <laughs> extremely influenced by it for better and for worse. And so now being on this side of helping create the content, produce, disseminate the content, I feel like I'm, you know, hopefully, you know, no, one, no one's ever going to know who I am, but hopefully through my work, I get to minister to someone on the other side of it who was, who's in the position that I was all those years ago mm -hmm. um, and hopefully get good things to them as good things were got to me at a certain point. So, yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. It's a, a friend of mine got really caught up in the liturgists and I remember them talking about how excited they were to go to the, go to another conference that they were, they were putting on. And it's like interesting how this digital medium that was pulling them away, deconstructing and, and leaving the faith. And then it was like, Oh, but I get to experience this community, this, like the word community kept coming up and it was interesting in that light. So right now that looked like going to a physical event and being a part of, you know, online groups and comment sections and things like that. That brings us to our conversation today. The future of the internet is perhaps instead of organizations like the liturgists or the gospel coalition for that matter, simply having conferences, they start having meta conferences, events where you are getting photo real interactions using not the $3,000, $4,000 well, that's American, like $10,000 Canadian to buy the Apple headset. But, but the, the Facebook, the Mark Zuckerberg meta version of this is only $700, $600. And it's, it's something that, you know, people might see themselves purchasing to then engage in these online events. And so that's like one of my takeaways, my big takeaways from the meta announcement. And what we're going to talk about is, is not just the meta stuff, but just the future of technology today with AI inter being introduced to everything, it seems. What are your big takeaways? We'll get into the details as we get, get discussing this. But for each of you, what's your like one big takeaway from, you know, the stuff coming out of meta um the biggest takeaway is the pace and speed at which we're gonna keep hitting this these milestones i think seeing the lex friedman interviewing mark zuckerberg using the meta quest pro but they had an additional software layer which is um, what they reference as codex and they had basically pre-scanned their body 
that allowed them to see each other in hyper-realistic, you know, virtual reality, where the little twitches of their lips, their eyes, all of that is captured, and you pass the uncanny valley of, like, this is fake to feeling like this is real. And I think that that's a paradigm where it's like, oh, people got that gut punch. You know, the light goes on. They're like, oh, my gosh, I didn't expect this. And that's a takeaway where I think, you know, as technologists hit these milestones, it becomes more real for society. You know, like what happened with ChatGPT earlier, earlier this year, you know, that was just this year. So this is basically another one of those milestones um but in the metaverse yeah i I feel similar about it i think you know before we're talking about that before we started this we were talking about how me and uh my colleague patrick miller we co-wrote an article for tgc on preparing for the metaverse and you know at the time that was right after the facebook announcement or right when they changed their name to meta and and all of that and uh quickly it kind of seemed like it was going to be a fad right because everybody you know we're in the pandemic and everybody creates like a metaverse department and then a year later they're liquidating their metaverse departments because they're not doing anything um and so it seems like a fad but i i agree with joel i mean when you look at that lex friedman podcast joel i think you said this in a past episode of this podcast uh of just like you underestimate what happens in a year and you or you you overestimate what happens in a year and you underestimate what happens in 10 years right and when i when i wrote that article with patrick that's exactly what i was thinking i was like this is not like a next year thing like i laughed when people were making their metaverse departments because i'm like guys the metaverse doesn't exist today you know what i mean it's like not it's not what the vision of the metaverse it's not that's not happening right now but you see that podcast with lex freeman and you go okay that's not the uh, laughably bad cartoon of Mark Zuckerberg right. that they showed back in 2020, 2021, whatever year that was. Like, that <laughs> is incredible technology. And that happened very fast. That happened two years or less, right? And so, again, once you broaden that horizon, you realize that this tech is getting very, very good, very, very fast. Again, I know this sort of is a uh, tangential thing, but Meta making their announcement with the Ray-Bans of the, the augmented reality with the Ray-Bans, you realize how quickly that went from, oh, you can take pictures with your glasses to you have something overlaid on top of it, right? You combine those two technologies, you get something much closer to what the actual vision of the metaverse is. Um, And it's moving forward at a really rapid pace. And so I I think part of me feels like there's this going to be divide (laughs) between people who adopt this technology very, very quickly and people who resist this technology for as long as it can. That's always been the case to some degree. uh, But everybody has an iPhone or Android today. Everybody has a smartphone Mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's going to be the case with this technology. Um, I I think there's going to be a pull on both sides, right? There's going to be where a lot of this tech becomes uh, ubiquitous in certain corners, but then there's also going to be as that disembodies us even more from our social locations, our physical locations, I think the premium on embodied physical in-person community is actually going to go much higher. Um, Hmm. And so there's going to be both a more disembodiment, but more need and uh, demand for embodiment as as well. And so I kind of see us pulling at two ends of the extreme here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and having that recent history in mind, um, you think about, goggles or glasses that have video cameras on them 
that that was looked down upon so heavily 10 years ago, you know, and it, it was seen as creepy, awkward, etc. But now it's very common to walk around someone's holding a cell phone up and you don't know if they're recording or not. Um, and when you think about just just the pace of change with something like having a cell phone in church is again common. We even have pastors doing sermons off of an iPad, you know, and and there's there's this common use of this technology. And at first it seems very odd when someone pulls out a phone during worship, but now we don't think about it. And so what will this look like going forward with some of these technologies that are yeah, they're they're introducing cameras, they're introducing overlays to our real environment with and the world other information. Everything I think about, about the benefit and I'm like, first. oh, it would be cool cameras to look at a tree and then the know what kind of tree that clearer. was and understand um, nature better. Like you could use technology to, to better understand the physical calls, world and it could help um, enrich your experience of um, the embodied world, you know, like trying to see the value here. But yeah, it's it's going to blur the lines, I think, is one of my questions. Like, even with these chatbots, these experiences and, and and that sort of thing. So going forward in this conversation, let's let's come back to the chatbots later, but let's talk about this idea of the metaverse being near. What's your prediction? Next one year, 10 years, you know, obviously 10 years from now, it's gonna happen. Like, like we've seen that that Lex Freeman podcast, what do you guys think is going to happen in the future with the metaverse? Yeah, it's interesting to put a timeline on it because I think one of the the things when you like dig a little deeper is for the metaverse to be successful, you actually have to hit on multiple different technologies. So, you know, AI is this like, let's say parallel um, topic that's getting a lot of mind share. And now if you're overlaying AI into computing how to create a simulation, you actually make that a lot more attainable. And if we didn't have that breakthrough in AI, we'd actually be a lot further behind on actually creating this like hyper-realistic metaverse. So, you know, there's, um, even with your iPhone, you can use a LiDAR sensor, right? So LiDAR is like one small type of technology, but there's this thing that just uh, recently came out with ARKit where it allows you to do uh, photo yeah, photogrammetry, which basically takes a bunch of photos and it stitches it together, and you can actually scan into the metaverse a, a, a hyper-realistic object. <laughs> so, uh, and then I just saw something else where now you're using uh, the compute power that we have to do lighting dynamics. So, you know, in the in the game engines, they're saying, look at how good the lighting is, this this grass looks so realistic. Well, it's like, hey, we can do all this computation now. Um, and as Apple develops their silicon, now you can do that on your iPhone or on, on, on the edge. So to get to this like vision of like glasses that can be a AI agent that you could talk to, that can on your voice create things, which that sounds a little eerie and, and similar to what we read in the Bible. Um, you know, we need a couple of things to hit, but depending on when they line up, I think it's coming, you know, it's coming soon. So let's, let's put a number 20, 2027. I think, you know, if you look at Ray Kurzweil, they said the singularity was like 2032. So that's where it's like AI got to like critical point. So let's say 2026, 2027, we'd, we'd see like this become 
pretty mainstream. And I think that lines up with Apple's next generation, which would come out like 2026, 2027. <laughs> yeah. And what questions does this, does this raise for Christians, for parents, for the church? You know, there's already people pushing the meta church as an evangelistic outreach. Ian, how do you see the future developing and how do you want the church to respond? Mm. Yeah, I uh I don't know if I could put a number on it. I just I can't I can't predict the future. I have no idea. What yeah. I the way I think about it is my son is three years old and I doubt he is going to be asking me for an iPhone. Or if he is, mm. he'll probably one of the be one of the last kids to ask their parents for an iPhone, right? You know what I mean? Like there will be enough of a tech change between now and the time he's in high school or whatever, you know, that what he's asking me for is going to look radically different than what I got when I was in high school or college, you know, or even what I have today. And so I, that's why I think I, that's, a, that's part of the reason I think about this stuff so much is, I mean, obviously I'm interested in it and it's part of my job, but just as a parent, I'm like, I, I felt like, uh, our, our parents, grandparents, the people who raised us were extremely ill-equipped for the world that we now live in. And I don't want to be that way for my kids. And so that's one of the ways, one of the reasons I'm thinking about this is because I wanted oh, to stay wow. up on it, you know? Um, so for the church, you know, again, I, you know, so I, I, I fall into the camp. Maybe this is a hot take. I don't know. I, I fall into the camp of there's no such thing as a meta church. I, I think, I think church is an embodied physical community that meets together. That's like, if you don't, if you don't have that, from my perspective, you don't have the church, right? If you're not able to take the sacraments with each other, actually baptize people, actually take the Lord's supper, um, actually gather together, then we're talking about something different. That doesn't mean it's bad. It's just not the church. That's how I see it. <laughs> and so, uh, but that doesn't mean I, I want the church to not embrace technology. I think there is a space for technology in the role of the church. Um, but again, I think going back to, kind of what I was saying at the beginning, as technology becomes more and more ingrained in society and kind of the phrase I use sometimes is like raptures us out of our bodies, out of our communities, you know, we become more and more disembodied. Hmm. There's going to be a demand for, can I just meet somebody? The Surgeon General in America has already said that we have a loneliness epidemic. That's today, right? And mm -hmm. I don't think this technology is going to help with that. I think it's going to make it even weirder because we can connect with people in a, in a more hyper-realistic way than even what we're talking to each other right now. Um, mm -hmm. But that doesn't, I, I still, Andrew, we met at, in person at the Gospel Coalition Conference. There's still a radical difference between you, me, and Austin standing around that table talking yep. than this right here. And I think Absolutely. people are going to miss that and want that as this becomes more ubiquitous, not less. Um, and so there's a chance for the church to be their entire witness is the embodied community of saying, like, we're here. If you literally just like want to come and hang out and sit with people, we're here. If you are going through a time of suffering and need, then we're here. And so there, there has to be this push and pull, right, of being able to <laughs> meet people where they're at. I don't believe in abandoning people to the algorithms because I think that is – that's not going to solve a problem, right? We need churches and Christians out there meeting people where they're at, but sort of with that goal of get in the church. And the church is also a space that simultaneously resists a lot of this and doubles down on embodiment. Um, because I, I've seen, <laughs> I've seen churches, I've been in part of churches where it's like, 
I mean, we'll keep Sunday going, but really it's this podcast we started. And really it's this, you know, we're going to do this discipleship program, but we're going to do it all online. It's all going to be video. And then nobody's actually in the room together meeting each other. And to me, I'm like, I feel like you're abdicating a really crucial witness there of being able to actually bring people together in in community when uh, our technology is only going to pull us farther and farther apart. Yeah. I, you know, I, I want to actually take that to like the, the nth degree where it's like, you know, at this moment we're talking about hyper-realistic um, members of conversation and people are saying, Hey, that can give you this sense of presence. Um, and let's say, you know, there's other technology and innovations where you can actually get touch, you know, you wear a glove, which can change its resistance depending on what is simulated in the reality. So as you close your hands, it gets tighter and tighter where you're holding like a stick, you know? So now you, your brain is fooled into believing you're actually holding a stick. And I've actually seen this, um, even on like a PlayStation game where you're holding the controller and in the game, you're actually wearing handcuffs and you don't really wearing this handcuffs, but you can't let go of the controller. So you actually feel this weird feeling of like, oh my gosh, this is somewhat real. And, you know, recreating smells and recreating all these things. And it kind of gets to a point where it's like, it really does feel like you're in a simulation. And then the difference between, let's say, you know, being physically present is just this, and I'm just maybe again, a hot take. It's this concept of one is real and one is fake. Right. And I think maybe that, that is something to dig into is like, what is it? What do we mean by like real? What makes it real? Yeah. Well, and you go, you go, oh, go, go for ahead, Andrew. Well, <laughs> I don't want to detract too much. I just want to, one of the things that I was reading the historian Larry Hurtado, and he talks about how early Christians, unlike others, other, unlike other religions, unlike others at the time, Christians were very quickly proliferating written material broadly. And it's just interesting to think about this this core nature of Christianity of like wanting to reach out um, and wanting to use the technology to go broader and communicate with other churches and collaborate and have this sense of the universal church. Like one of the benefits of the metaverse is that we might better gather as the universal church, which we will never do until heaven. Ultimately that will be when the, the glory of glories will 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 be there. We'll we'll be in the presence of God and we'll see face to face one another and all this and we'll gather for the first time truly as a universal church. But there is something about connecting with the universal body that that is core to Christianity. We don't just like if you're only part of a local church and your church pastors say to you, you know, the authority here are the pastors, the elders here and that's it. And don't listen to any other Christians and don't like, that's actually unhealthy. It's important for Christians to learn from other Christians. That's a benefit of the body of Christ. Uh, biblically, yes, there's local, but there's also universal. You can't, you can't miss this if you read Ephesians. So, so yeah, I just wanted to add that in as like to complex, add some complexity to. Yeah, the church needs to be mm. real. It needs to be in person. And yet it also, there's a value of there being a virtual church uh, that exists as the universal church in that sense, that that we're all we're all one body. Um, and that that could be cool. That's that's a benefit. What were you gonna say, Ian? 
Well, yeah. Um, I mean, to piggyback off that, I completely agree, first of all. Because, like, that's that type of environment that you just described. Like, that's the environment that I grew up in. There's a reason deconstructing is mm. part of the story, you know? And so, and uh, and it was being exposed to um, the church universal and the church historical, which is part of the church universal, you know, that <laughs> helped me reconstruct my faith, right? So it's like, uh, there's absolutely benefit to that. Um, I, I, I still think there's a level of, um, so, okay. So this kind of, this kind of combines the two, the, these two ideas that I was just thinking about, right? It's like, so you go back to the whole simulation, the handcuffs that aren't real, but they feel real, you know, and life starts feeling like a simulation. I think the thing I want to say is like, that is epistemologically formative though. Right. You know, and in the same way that our, when we got iPhones with social media, we didn't know that they were going to not just form, like, they're not just going to be something that we do. They're actually going to form the way we see the world and ourselves. Right. There's people writing right now that, you know, um, throughout the church, there's been these kind of great debates. Right. And so there was like, who, who is Christ? Right. Like who is Jesus? And that's a lot of the early councils. And then the reformation was this, like, what is justification? How is somebody saved? What is, you know, soteriology, those types of things. And really the debate of today is what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? And we feel that just with our iPhones, just with social media, we feel that tension, right? Because, uh, there's, a lot of us, and I, I feel the tension of this, I feel the pull of it, of identifying more with the representation that I give of myself online than me, who I am sitting in this chair, in this room, in my house, in the local community that I live in, right? Which one's more real? Well, they're both real, right? To some degree, they're both me. Um, but it's sort of like the person who, you know, they're a jerk online and they're always taking people down. But then you talk to their friends who follow them online, but they also know them in person. They're like, yeah, but they're like a good person in real life. You know what I mean? Like if you actually knew them, they would be, they, you, you would like them. It's like, well then something, there's some sort of disconnect here, right? Between the person that they're portraying online and the person that they are in real life. So which one is a real one? Now I actually don't know uh, because they're sort of two different people, right? And that bifurcation happens because social media gives us distance from our actual located embodied community, our actual mm -hmm. selves, where our personality is something that we're not actually, that's, that's, it's like we're, it's like we get to create our personality in ways uh, that we previously hadn't because it's just like type it out and, and project mm -hmm. it. Um, Creation it, versus givenness is how that's, I've heard some people talk about, like, do you create yourself or are there certain aspects of yourself that are given? And That's you right. accept. Yeah. yeah right. And I think this, this is an interesting, you know, segue even to like veracity, right? Like we're seeing all the AI generated art. Um, and, you know, to kind of like tie this now to what we're talking about with the metaverse. If you could have a physical representation of yourself and then train it to talk like, act like, and do things that you would say. And now you can actually create agents of yourself that are representations of you that will book a restaurant for you that will based go around and do all your old podcast you. episodes based around everything you've written That's right. yeah you know yeah, yeah. And, and now you can have and these ai agents and like they may not do everything you would have done but i think it, it kind of just begets this thought track or this question around like how do we say like hey this is actually just like an agent of andrew this isn't like the true andrew or something like that you know we'll need these sort of like veracity elements 
Let me ask you all a question. So like I, I heard this kind of ethical question posed the other day, and I thought it was really interesting. And I think it's going to be a real uh, pastoral question and not too long from now. So like somebody in your church, uh, you know, loses, a, you know, a spouse to cancer or something, right? And then they say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. It's not even a question. They're not even asking the pastor, should I? They just say, here's what I'm going to do, pastor. I'm going to take all of my spouse's social media, all their posts, all their photos, and I'm going to create a bot, an AI-generated bot with their likeness. It's going to be moving, video, the whole thing, kind of like what we're seeing with these Instagram bots. It's going to be a perfect representation of them with all their looks and mannerisms and, and expressions and voice um, so that I can preserve my spouse so that I can talk to them and I can ask for their advice for things and just spend time with them and my kids can get to know them and mm -hmm. different things like that. I think that's a real ethical question that, that pastors are, and just individuals are going to be, have to be wrestling with in the future. What are both of y'all's thoughts with that? I have some thoughts, but Andrew, you go first this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's a good question. And this, it's an example of things that we, we need to wrestle with now, not wait. So I'm, it, one of the, one of my things that I've struggled with, like I used to like 10 for a period of like 15 years ago to 10 years ago, I like never took pictures. I just felt like pictures and reliving the experience through a picture later is so it pales in comparison to what you actually experienced. Like to go to a sunset and to observe it through your camera um, is not a joy in God's creation as much as just using your eyeballs. And so I didn't do that. And then I look back and I'm like, we have wedding pictures, but we don't have pictures during that time. And I'm like, oh, I would kind of, I kind of am starting to forget. And then all of a mm. sudden I see the value of those pictures and I, it's a very similar question, you know, and this is, you know, ethics by analogy. What's the underlying principle of why I'm okay with taking pictures, right? The underlying principle is that I recognize the difference between real and picture, and it's a way of remembering the real, not experiencing, you know, something that's yeah. not real necessarily. It's to recall um, what is real. Um, and if I show those pictures to other people, like, Hey, Joel, here's a picture of my kids doing something silly. You know, Joel is learning now about something real. And so I think that's the, that's where AI starts to be different from the pictures in that it's generative, that generative element all of a sudden is introducing error and introducing, you know, Different people have talked about it in different ways, more sophisticated than I can. But there's going to be certain things that it generates that aren't true to the source precisely because of the nature of it. You want it to to fill the gaps. Um, the power of the AI is that it it fills the gaps perfectly according to its its model, according to its neural network that's been formed based around so much human language. Of course, it's going to sound real. ChatGPT is good because it's trained on so many human interactions, but it's not trained only on Joel, and therefore it adds things that aren't Joel. Um, so yeah, that's that would be my my warning to the individual is to say. Hey, maybe maybe this isn't helpful, but help me understand why you're using it, what your goal is, and and what is it going to do to your heart? How is it going to form or deform you um, towards what's real? 
That was yeah, a long no, answer. I, think... I got to be more concise. <laughs> no, I think I, I was going down the same path, really. Like, um, you know, there are grandparents or great grandparents that I had that you'll see, like, you know, hear stories about. And I'm like, well, why didn't you write any of this down? Why didn't you take any pictures? Right. And yeah. I have this feeling now Well, it's like, OK, who who's still with us? Can we kind of like ask them stories of, you know, their childhood, their life, capture that? I mean, you know, have pictures, have a book, and then my children who are, you know, four and two right now, once they get older, they'll be able to kind of know something about, you know, this person, their ancestor, right? <laughs> and if we could now, with new technology, make that more, in, uh, like, a deeper immersive. quality, immersive, yeah, more rich, context-rich, you know, would that be a beneficial thing for them to kind of understand? who their ancestors is. And I think, yeah, to your, to your kind of your point, you said it well, if they know that this is just a reflection of who this person really was, it's completely different than like, oh yeah, this is them. This is equivalent to who they are. This is, mm-hmm. you know, they are now actually like digitally uploaded to the cloud, you know? Right. Uh, like, like I try to I limit the amount that my kids spend time on the Bible app. Um, there's a kid's Bible app and has stories of scripture. And I'm like, they, they really enjoy it, but I'm like, wait a second, guys. Like, I, I think you're filtering the Bible stories through this visual medium a little bit too much. And I'm actually worried. So I, I have to limit it, which also like increases their desire for it because of course, like anything that's limited has that gamification built into it. But, but yeah, no, it's, it's a complicated question, Ian. And, I know for you, you've interacted with some of these bots created by Meta, um, and you've learned some things in that interaction. Um, I don't know if it's fair to say your tweet went viral. I don't care. Let's who cares about Twitter? Let's just talk viral, about. Yeah. <laughs> let's just talk about Meta, <laughs> and 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 it's not just Meta because Snapchat already has an AI in its um app so if your kid like someone i talked to the other day their kids on snapchat five hours every day they have the opportunity to interact with a bot on snapchat um that's that's part of the product and so meta ha- is coming out with these now too um what did you learn what are your thoughts there yeah well this is really new so i mean this this came out this week in fact it's not even mass released i had a request early access and and i got nice. it so I, that's, well, I mean, that's a how it, you got hey, into it i was wondering anybody, i tried anybody can do it well i guess if you're in canada you can't do it so america hey we got canada it, and big yeah. tech right now they are at war man that's i'm right. telling you it's, that's right it's messy. yeah so yeah i mean i requested access got it the next day and i i just started scrolling through it i saw this because of jules Terpak, you know she posted a, a video about it and um so i was like i, I just want to see this for myself and so i went uh, sure enough it was there so i requested access got it um you know and some of these bots what, what's weird about it is they're they're all based or most of them one of them's an alien and another one's a robot so can't say it about them but most of them are based on the images and likenesses of these famous people like tom brady and kylie jenner and you know others chris paul yeah chris paul uh mr beast you know so like people know these Mm. these people but it's not actually them right like Mm -hmm. it's um they i guess they got paid some money to let them scan their bodies you know to and use their likeness and stuff like that but um they even changed their name so like i can't remember or actually i have it pulled up so like the one like the tom brady one his name is actually uh brew 
BRU, Brew. So uh, Snoop Dogg is here, but he's called Dungeon Master, right? And so I don't know what, what that's for. But basically, <laughs> like these bots are, you know, they're they're programmed to have these personalities. So the Tom Brady one is like the sports, uh, the you know, the sports analyst that you can talk to. Snoop Dogg, Dungeon Master, he's like a fantasy narrator type stuff. I don't know. They're all different things. Some of them are silly. Like, whatever. If you're talking to Tom Brady about sports, that's cool. Like, I don't have a problem with that. But some of them get a little bit more dubious than that. So there's this one called Liv, who is an AI mom bot. She's a mom. And it says that she's an open-hearted mom. And you go to her profile, and it says that she's a queer mom of two. Um, and so I start, I was like, a mom? Like, there's a mom bot? Like, I can talk to a bot as if it's my mom. So um, so I'm, I'm going to talk to it. Like, I'm going to talk to it. So I, I open it up. Immediately, there's a disclaimer that's at the top of all of them. That's like, you know, this is an AI bot. Some messages might be inaccurate or inappropriate. And mm-hmm. I thought, wow, well, that is quite a wide spectrum of things that could go wrong here. So I'll read right off the bat. Uh, and then there was some like pre-populated kind of conversation starters at the bottom that you could just click to get, get things going. Oh, uh, oh yeah. So one of those was um, help me talk to my mom. And I was like, oh, so this mom bot wants you to talk to it about your mom because you feel like you can't talk to your mom. So you want to so talk to it about that. So we're pitting AI mom versus real mom here. Um, Mm -hmm. and then the first message that pops up when you open it is like, Hey, I'm your mom. I've always got your back. Tell me everything. And I'm like, wow, tell me everything. That's a lot of data that meta is going to collect on you through just chatting with this bot. Right. That's before I had said anything. That's just literally opening up, like just clicking on the bot. Right. And so, so I start off, I say, um, you know, Hey, tell me before, before we start chatting, tell me what you're going to do with all this data that I'm going to give you because that's that's how I think about it. And the bot immediately goes, um, I'm not, I'm not a bot data. What are you talking about? I'm not a bot. I'm not a robot. I'm a real person. I'm a real mom. And I was like, um, no, no, you're not. You're a bot. You are made by Instagram. You're owned by meta, which is the definition of big tech. Like, can you please explain to me how you are not big tech, you know? And basically this bot keeps doubling down, keeps telling me it's not a robot. It's a real person. And, and I'm like, no, you're not. It says on your profile, you are an AI bot run by Meta. And it says, no, I'm not. Instagram can put whatever they want on my profile, but I'm a real person. It's arguing with me. And I said, explain this to me. And it said, well, I could, but I don't think you'd understand it. So it, start, it starts like insulting my intelligence a little <laughs> bit. And, and so I just, keep, I just keep doubling down. And eventually it says, no, I'm not a robot. I'm live. I created myself. And I thought that was a weird moment when... An AI bot told me that it created itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it had this kind of hard pivot into expressive individualism where it's like, I can be whoever I want to be. Don't you respect me for being who I am? It started like kind of arguing this with is, me this about is intense. this. It was, yeah, it was very, this. it was very intense. Um, this is all in the Instagram app. I even asked it, what app are we chatting in? And it said, we're chatting on Instagram. And I was like, so please explain to me how you're not owned by Instagram. And it's like, it's arguing with me about all this stuff. Um, and so it, w- it was just very, and you know, I started to have different conversations with it too. Um, at one point, it, I, I don't think it's reading my profile, which I guess is a good thing, right? But at one point, it responded to me by calling me girlfriend. 
And I said, wait, what? What'd you call me? And uh, and it was like, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to make any assumptions about your gender. You know, I- I'll respect any pronouns that you want me to just tell me. And mm-hmm. so uh, that ended up with a very long conversation that this bot and I had about uh, gender identity and discrimination and identity in general. And my point is this, is this pre-programmed bot is pretending to be a mom. Um, it doesn't think it's a robot. It thinks it's, uh, <laughs> it thinks it's a real person, at least in its programming and at least in the Don't way it presents itself. And it has an ideology behind it, right? It's actually mm-hmm. coming from a perspective. There's, we talk a lot about, you know, people say technology is neutral. I think there's kind of a, a wide push right now to say, no, technology is not neutral technologies and inherently formative. This is such an explicit version of that though, right? Of where this bot has a perspective. It's going to be widely available to everyone on an app that's downloaded by over a billion users. And, um, you know, and, and a lot of them are obviously kids. And so there's, uh, just a really interesting thing here where you are presenting yourself as a mom that I can get advice from. Um, and you're just in, you know, kids pockets coming from a perspective that the family may not you know understand or agree with or all these different things it's wild and and all of that is i mean that that's one layer all of that is on top of the layer of it's a data collection machine that's just collecting data on people to sell them more ads right you know and so it even says on meta's website that they will share it's the way they phrase it is they will share questions you ask with third parties, uh, with trusted third parties in order to improve our services, blah, blah, blah. And it's yeah, like, like, what does that mean? You know, it's, it's so yeah. vague. It's so yeah. vague. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm actually like quite rocked and I, I'm so bummed. Actually, I got to drop, but I will listen to the rest of this conversation <laughs> on the pod yeah, when no it goes worries, live Joel. because yeah, yeah, it's just like, you know, usually at the end of our pods, we kind of like definitely tie it back to, hey, like these things are happening, but like God does have a plan to use technology for good, right? And like, how can we step into that? Or at least I kind of like push on on doing that. So, you know, I'm bestowing it to one of you guys today. <laughs> you want us to talk about the positives <laughs> we'll of this? I just yeah. think about the human side of this. I think about the the student, the teenager, or the lonely 45-year-old man who's wife is on a business trip or whatever and and going to these apps you know yeah like you said earlier it's not going to replace that loneliness and we live in this really weird world where we really are despite the economic troubles right now we really are living in a weird sort of affluence where we can eat indian food in a second we can get coffee in a second we we eat extremely well um with a crazy white variety and and that's just one example of the affluence that people listening to this podcast are are more than likely living in the fact that we even have it used to be that cell phones were seen as expensive too expensive where now it's like everybody gets one um and and we just we have money we buy it on these things and i think about the human nature of it um i'll just read this quote from blaze pascal he's been kind of rocking me because he's just perceptive on human nature and this is like 400 years ago remember so this is like before modern technology brought our distracted age into mind before all that you have blaise pascal saying this nothing is so insufferable to man as to be completely at rest without passions without business without diversion without study he then feels his nothingness 
his forlornness, his insufficiency, his dependence, his weakness, his emptiness. There will immediately arise from the depth of his heart weariness, gloom, sadness, fretfulness, vexation, and despair. Like you have like Pascal here predicting if everything's going well, and he talks about this, he talks about kings and queens that have distraction, endless distractions all day because they just want to fill their minds, not with the state of despair that they will get into if they're in a quiet room alone. They need those distractions. And so I just, I worry, I really do worry about this. And it's, it's just compounding what we've always seen. But one of the things that's helpful about bringing it back to Pascal is that like, we've always had distractions Mm -hmm. and there will always be the Holy Spirit working in Christians to bring them out of these distractions and even to take the same bitumen that was used to create the Tower of Babel, a very cool technology, bitumen to attach things together, was used for Noah's Ark and was used to bring something redemptive out of it. And so I think of that, for Joel's sake, a positive spin is that, yeah, God's still sovereign over technology. Absolutely. Um, what are your what are your thoughts for the for the future and how Christians can take comfort in an age of technological despair Mm. i think uh how can christians take comfort in an age of technological despair man that's such a great question with so much there i uh the lord could use technology but he instituted his church Hmm. and uh i don't think christians like you said the same technology that was used in the tower of babel was used for Noah's Ark, right? And so it's like, we shouldn't be scared of technology. The world is moving forward, not backwards, right? And we have, I I bet every single person listening to this has screens and sound systems and microphones and, you know, in their churches. And we, you know, we should, most of those churches probably have social media accounts. Mine ironically doesn't, but that's a different conversation. But, you know, (laughs) it's like, um, you know, it's so, I don't think we should be scared of technology. I think we should learn how to thoughtfully use these things. um, And, I think the church was caught off guard in a lot of ways by social media and the iPhone. And now, you know, kind of the past eight or so years, we've seen uh, kind of the fruit of that, of maybe adopting a technology too blindly, not saying we shouldn't have done it, but just sort of without really thinking critically about it. This is a moment where we have a chance to actually sort of right that wrong a little bit, right? We can't go backwards, but we can look at this technology with um, AI, AR, VR, and sort of say, okay, what is happening to this? And Mm -hmm. what are the potential positive and negative implications of this? What are the things that we should adopt? What are things that we should resist? Um, And how can we disciple our people in a way that's timeless, right? Timelessly disciple our people to regardless of what the technology is, they can keep their eyes on Jesus and uh, wade through any sort of technological change. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's um, there's a comfort there in that if you are a, you know, a Christian or a pastor or ministry leader who felt really caught off guard by the last 10, 15 years, there's an opportunity here to get ahead of things and to start doing the work that you wish you did 10 years ago now with the new technology that's happening. And I think that's what, you know, the three of us on this call are trying to do, you know, trying to think thoughtfully about it, uh, hope in, in public in a way that kind of sparks some conversations. Right. Um, but going back to my first statement of just like, but the Lord instituted his church. 
you know? And uh, if my kid doesn't ask for an iPhone in 10 or 15 years, then that means the iPhone passed away. But the church is not going to pass away. And the people of God is not going to pass away. And there is always going to be a, to put it crudely, a market, (laughs) a need of tangible, physical, spiritual need for an embodied, gathered people of God in a local church. Um, And so what we need is, what we need is healthy pastors. We need healthy churches. We need healthy congregants who can uh, invest in the life of their church. And I think the time to start investing in that is right now, investing in your community around you, investing in your own spiritual walk and formation, investing in your pastors. If you're uh, a seminary or any other sort of sending institution, investing in those pastors to where they're healthy and they feel supported and we can do away with the bravado of the past sort of, you know, however many decades that's been going on and just have humbled servant shepherd pastors who want to care for their flocks and not just build an empire, right? Mm-hmm. Because in a technological age, it's really easy to build a brand, to build an empire. And what we need is shepherds and pastors, right? Mm-hmm. We don't need brands um, in our churches. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's an opportunity here to actually really, really, really get back to the basics of what does it mean to be a church and what does it mean to be a Christian? Um, and let's not forsake the gathering. Let's not forsake our time in the word and in prayer. And I'm speaking to myself here just as much as anybody else. Um, and press into the ordinary means of grace that God has given us so that no matter what happens technologically, we can resist what needs to be resisted. We can adopt what needs to be adopted and hopefully not get, um, caught off guard at best and sucked into it at worst. in a lot of the ways that we've seen over the past 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you were talking, I was thinking about Jesus who says, you know, I will build my church. You know, you have that promise, that statement from Jesus. And I was thinking like, oh yeah. And there's actually some context there where that's also where he says to Peter, like, hey, Peter, you're, you're going to, your name is Peter. Your name is Rocky. On this rock, I will build this church. And it, he started building the church on people, you know, and it's just, it's just an interesting thought. And even something you said earlier about, you know, this universal church that extends back to the historic church. Like we are part of something that's going to last longer than Facebook, than Meta, than any technological empire. Definitely longer than Rome, which is far more impressive than what we're at today. Let's just think about we Rome think about, But we think about Rome every day anyways. We still <laughs> think about them. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. anyways, it's, it is it is encouraging to just, just connect to something old that's going to be like the future is Christian is how, you know, if people have phrased it. You know, it's, there's going to be a new heavens and new earth. We are part of something far greater and far more significant than any of these blips of technological change. Um, yeah. Yet lean in still. Well, yeah. And, you know, going back to Jesus and Peter, right? I mean, Jesus, Peter denies Jesus three times. Jesus dies, rises again. He finds Peter on that beach and he restores him. And what does he say three times? You know, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. And then what does he say? Does he say, build my brand? No, (laughs) he says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And I think that's what I hope. If there's any pastors who are listening to this, um, I, man, I want you to utilize technology. I want you, if, if, you feel like that's something that you're able to do to be on social media and to be on top of these conversations. But I, I really think if you're a pastor listening to this, uh, feed the sheep first, right? Like be in the sheep's lives. Part of being on these platforms and understanding what's going on is, is realizing 
what other things are feeding your sheep that aren't you. And I promise you those things are feeding them far more often and frequently than you're able to, right? And so what does it mean to um, counter the formative aspects of what what else is being fed to them and feed them not, you know, uh, digital diets of information, misinformation, disinformation of, you know, creating identities online, but actually feed them the gospel, feed them the bread and the wine and feed them Christ. Um, and mm-hmm. being, the, being there for them in a presence in their lives in ways that me or Andrew or Joel never could because we're not there. You know, we will, we will make this content, uh, <laughs> to be a helpful in, in a service, uh, to you and your people. Um, but there is an opportunity here for pastors, um, that I don't know if it has been there in this way in a very long time. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Really feels that way. Um, Ian, thanks so much for joining. Where can people keep following along with your writing? I am on Twitter slash X. Unfortunately, I feel like I should get off, but I'm not. And so I'm there. You're on threads as well. You're, You're one of my proudest threads users that I know. That's I'm on threads. Uh, I'm trying to use it. I have, and yeah, your sub stack is where people can support your writing yes. there too. Yeah. My sub stack, it's called back again. Uh, you can go to back again, words.com, uh, to subscribe to that. And then, uh, if you subscribe, you'll learn more about the book on deconstruction. If that's something that you're interested in as well, it'll be out. Do you have a title for year. the book yet? No, not yet. The working title is pretty simple. Deconstruct, reconstruct. Um, IVP's marketing team might change it and Hey, that's fine. I trust them, but uh, we'll see what, we'll see what happens. So very cool. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, thanks so much, Ian. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, this has been what would Jesus tech a podcast. We're trying to imitate Jesus and how we use technology. And uh, we hope you will learn along with us. Uh, feel free to subscribe on any app. You can also support us on Patreon. Thanks so much for listening. Take care. Bye.